the junk mail and the trash can under the table and notice that the trash can is full. So I decide to put the junk mail and the trash can under the table and notice that the trash can is full. So I decide to put the junk mail and the trash can under the table and notice that the trash can is full. So I decide to put my extra checks are in my desk in a study. So I go to my desk where I find the bottle of Coke that I had been drinking. I'm going to look for my checks, but first I need to push the Coke aside so that I don't accidentally knock it over. And I see that the Coke is getting warm, and I decide I should put it in the refrigerator to keep it cold. So as I head toward the refrigerator with the Coke, a vase of flowers on the counter catches my eye. They need to be watered. So I set the Coke down on the counter, and I discover my reading glasses that I've been searching for all morning. I decide I better put them back on my desk, but first I'm going to water the flowers. So I set the glasses back down on the counter, fill a container with water, and suddenly I spot the TV remote. Somebody left it on the kitchen table. I realize that tonight when we go to watch TV, we'll be looking for the remote, but nobody will remember that it's on the kitchen table, so I decide to put it back in a den where it belongs. But first I'll water the flowers. So I splash some water on the flowers, but most of it spills on the floor. So I set the remote back down on the table, get some towels, and wipe up the spill. Then I head down the hall, trying to remember what was I planning to do. So at the end of the day, the car isn't washed, the bills aren't paid, there's a warm bottle of Coke sitting on the counter, the flowers aren't watered, there's still only one check in my checkbook, I can't find the remote, I can't find my glasses, and I don't remember what I did with the car keys. Does that sound vaguely familiar at all? Okay. Now, some of you who are younger, they call you millennials. You're saying, wow, it must be really terrible to get old and, and forgetful like that story. Well, there was a poll taken recently, and I want you to know that you millennials, age 18 to 34 roughly, are much more likely, they found, than those 55 or older to forget things like what day it is. You're twice as likely as seniors to forget what day it is. You are nearly twice as likely to forget where you put your keys. You are three times as likely to forget to bring your lunch. And you're, you're also three times as likely to forget to take your shower. So some of you may just want to make a little room if you're sitting next to some of those stinky millennials this morning. Um, but we are a forgetful people. It's not a new problem. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote this verse. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe to you. So today, we're going to review, okay? We're going to review the book of Acts, not just for content's sake, as helpful as it is, but more importantly, to remember what God has been saying to each of us uh, throughout this study. It's been right at a year we've been in the book of Acts throughout most of the year. Uh, started last August in the book of Acts. Um, 39 sermons, by my count, had been preached from the book of Acts. Um, if you've been reading the book of Acts, you've read 1,006 verses and 24,229 words, as long as you're reading in the King James Version. Okay. Um, what has God been saying to you that you dare not forget? What is your great takeaway from all, this, all these lessons, all this teaching in the book of Acts, all this reading and reflection? What must you do 
now that you have finished the study of the book of Acts. So that's what we're going to try to answer today. And in order to do that, we're going to drop into the book of Acts in three very particular places to try to jar our memory. But I'd like to pray for us first. You can open your Bible to Acts chapter 1 if you'd like, and we'll, we'll go from there. Father, have mercy on us now by your Spirit. Prompt the forgetful people to remember and to obey. And we ask this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Um, there's a book in my office. It's called Talk Through the Bible. And it's a series of short summaries of books of the Bible. And they each begin with a, a chart that looks like this. And I know you can't read it in the back, so I'll read it to you. It has a good little summary of the book of Acts. It says, Luke begins the book of Acts where he left off in his gospel. Acts records the initial fulfillment of the Great Commission of Matthew 28 as it traces the beginning and growth of the New Testament church. Christ's last words before his ascension were so perfectly realized in the book of Acts that they effectively and concisely outline its contents. Acts 1.8 says, you shall, be my witness, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, which is chapter 1 to 7, and in all Judea and Samaria, chapter 8 to 12, and to the end of the earth, chapter 13 to 28. Thus, Acts traces the rapid expansion of the gospel, beginning in Jerusalem and spreading throughout the Roman Empire. So, Acts 1.8 has provided us kind of a skeletal outline of the book, right? It starts with a witness in Jerusalem in the first seven chapters, then it moves to a witness in Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And it focuses first on the Jews, then on the Samaritans, and ultimately on the Gentiles or the nations. It starts with Peter, moves through Philip, and the primary focus at the end is on Paul, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. The simplest way to remember the outline of the book of Acts that I know is simply this. It starts here. It moves near, and then it goes far, okay? Here, near, and far, and you have just memorized an outline of, of the book of Acts according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So what we're going to do today, we're going to drop into three passages, in each one, one in each of those sections. One in the first section here, one in the second section near, and one critical one in the third section far, and we'll... The, the goal, again, is try to help you remember what's God been saying. What's he been saying to me? What's he been saying to the churches? Okay, we, want, we want to remember that together. So first, we're in that here section in Jerusalem where Luke is following up after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has continued to appear to his disciples for 40 days. And on that final 40th day before Jesus ascends to heaven... He gives this command and promise to his people. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. He says, you will be my witnesses. You will receive power, excuse me, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then on that 40th day after his resurrection, Jesus returned to heaven to reign and rule at the right hand of the Father. And for the next 10 days, the church is waiting. It says all those with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer during those 10 days. And, and that's what they were. They were waiting and they were praying for 10 days. And after 10 days of prayer on Pentecost, 
50 days after Jesus' resurrection, we read this in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So Luke is saying some phenomenal things were happening in Jerusalem in that gathering of believers on Pentecost. Um, There was something like a mighty rushing wind, and there were tongues as of fire. Though they were not actual wind or actual fire, they were something like it. They were something real. And they were also highly symbolic. Um, This wind-like sound that happened. Um, The wind in the Old Testament especially is often a symbol of the presence of God. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word for spirit is the same word as the word for wind. And then there's also something as of flames of fire appeared on their heads, right? We don't know exactly what that is, but if you remember when we taught through this passage, I showed you a picture of a modern-day occurrence of this incident happening at one of our small groups, okay? So this is still happening today. Um, the, uh, all you need is an outreach pastor and a tiki torch, and you got exactly what was going on. Um, but fire is a symbol also of God's presence. Think with me back to the book of Exodus, and God appeared in a burning bush, right? And he led his people by a pillar of fire. So the symbolism in Acts 2 is telling us that God himself is showing up here in this upper room amongst and upon his people. Just as Jesus promised, the Spirit of God has come upon them. And these symbols of mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire are evidencing that the promise has been fulfilled. The Spirit has been poured out. Um, And the Spirit, if you remember back to when we studied the Holy Spirit before we studied Acts, the Holy Spirit is fully God, a fully divine and personal member of the Godhead, the Trinity. And the promise has been fulfilled on a very particular day. It's interesting. Forty days plus ten. We end up on this 50 days after Jesus' resurrection called Pentecost. Now, the festivals and celebrations, maybe you remember in the Old Testament, were frequently pointers to something that was yet to come, a greater fulfillment, especially in the life and ministry of Jesus. So it's of interest to note that at the celebration of Passover, Jesus was crucified. And on the festival of first fruits, an Old Testament festival, he was raised from the dead. And now on Pentecost, another of those festivals called the, Festi- the Feast of Weeks, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. So as Passover pointed to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross, where he's the ultimate sacrificial lamb, just as the festival of first fruits pointed to Jesus' resurrection, the first from the dead among many. Now Pentecost, which was a harvest feast, points to the amazing events associated with the sending of the Spirit that's going to bring about a great harvest of followers of Jesus amongst all peoples. That began with this outpouring of the Spirit. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit 
gave them utterance. And it says, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each, each of us in his own native language? And then Luke lists the languages that were spoken. It's crazy. There were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. So some of these people lived in Jerusalem. It was a cosmopolitan city. But Pentecost is also one of three Old Testament pilgrim feasts where Jews from all over the world would come back to Jerusalem um, on pilgrimage. And so God, on this 50th day, timed this gift of languages to correspond with the presence of people from many nations so that they might hear the mighty works of God in their own language. And so we have this earliest of snapshots of the church, right? Gathering together as disciples of Jesus, speaking to people from a wide variety of nations and places about the mighty works of God, empowered wholly by the Spirit to be witnesses even to the end of the earth. So in this here section, we see the church come into being, and even then it's pointing to the far away. It's pointing that the, the gospel's going to go from here to near to far. But in this first section, we, we see the church taking form and shape and devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So think back with me, back, back to last summer when we were studying this passage. Can, can you remember what God was saying to you about being the church? about what he was saying to you about what you are and should be devoting yourself to. What are you devoted to? About reaching out to the people here, right where you live, in our city, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates. What has God been saying? Well, now that the church almost immediately begins to be persecuted, Remember, Stephen is martyred along about chapter 7, and believers are driven out of Jerusalem from here to near. It says, um, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So again, we're moving from this section of witness in Jerusalem into a witness in Judea and Samaria. From here, now to near. Um, and in this near section, a fascinating encounter occurs and involves Philip. And that's the second, second one I'd like for us to look at today. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they're going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. God, this is a really remarkable story. You see how God exercises his sovereign lordship in remarkable detail to bring the good news about Jesus to a man riding a chariot on a desert road in the middle of nowhere. Um, an angel is dispatched to Philip, the messenger, who sends him to a desert road. It's followed by more directions from the Spirit of God to run alongside a chariot there. And it just happens to be the moment that he's reading the prophet Isaiah, one of the messianic prophecies. In that chariot, there's a man whom God has set his love upon. A man from another country and culture. And in this man, the unstoppable promise of the spread of the gospel is playing out just like Jesus said, right? From Jerusalem here to Judea and Samaria, near and then far away, even, even to Ethiopia. Um, you know, we have watched this happen already in Acts, okay? It starts with a little band of believers in an upper room in Jerusalem. And then thousands come to Christ. And then the church is scattered by persecution. And people like Philip, as they go, are sharing the message of Jesus all along the way. From here to near, and now a man from afar is hearing the message. You know, we think of the ends of the earth. We might think of Timbuktu or Papua New Guinea. Um, to them, Ethiopia was the ends of the earth. And God is keeping his promise pursuing a man who represents a people who are yet to hear the good news of Christ, the gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus promised. And the, in the process, it's crossing all kinds of barriers. Likely, this was a very wealthy man. Uh, the chariot was the limo of the day, and he was something akin to the finance minister of the nation of Ethiopia, in charge of all the queen's treasure. Sometimes we think that people like that, they really don't need the gospel. But, but here we see a man, right, this A-lister, begging Philip to explain who Jesus is based on Isaiah's prophecy. 
and then begging him to baptize him as a follower. This man of remarkable wealth. You will never meet anyone so together, so accomplished, so content that they don't need the gospel. This is a gospel for all people, all cultures, all nations, all classes, and all races. Because this man from Ethiopia, Ethiopia is from Africa. He was probably black. And in seeking this man, God is intentionally offering the gospel of Jesus to someone of a decidedly different race. And on that desert road, in that chariot, two men of, of different races became brothers in the waters of baptism. And the gospel is engaging all classes, all races, because the love of God extends to all people equally everywhere. This is the heart of God. This is what the church is called to do, that the gospel would transcend matters of race because we love as we have been loved. This is the heart of God. Now think back with me. When we were working through this section of Acts, what was God saying to you about reaching out to people who may not be here, but maybe they're near. Maybe they're out where we've sent our church plants. Maybe they're, maybe they're in our area, but they're different culturally or different racially than you. What is God saying to you about loving those who are different from you? Well, let's move to that third great circle, right? From here to near and now to far, to the ends of the earth. And we've been talking about this a lot recently, focusing in on Paul's missionary journeys. We're going to drop into Acts chapter 15, where Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch in Syria, wrapping up what's referred to often as Paul's first missionary journey. And while they're there, a dispute breaks out says in chapter 15, verse 1, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, um, they could not resolve this, and they, they would eventually need to go to Jerusalem, as we'll see, to resolve it. Because these men were saying something that Paul would not bear. They were saying that it's not enough it's not enough to just look to Jesus and believe. These men were saying you needed to do something more. You needed to add something to that look, to that desperate faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. In this case, they were saying you had to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. Um, they were saying essentially you have to become a Jew if you want to be saved. Because for a Jew to fail to bear the sign of circumcision was to, was to break the covenant, to be cut off from God's people. It was a big deal for the people of Israel. So it's understandable in a sense that they would require it of Gentiles who are non-Jews who want to become part of God's people too. And of course, that Paul's first missionary journey is happening in ever-increasing numbers. Non-Jews, Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus everywhere, and they are not circumcised. But to adding even this sacred requirement to the gospel, Paul and Barnabas are vehemently opposed. Because if one part of law keeping was required for right standing before God, where did you stop? You would have to keep the whole law, all 600 and some commandments. And this is what they were insisting. In Acts 15, verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, believing Gentiles, 
and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And if that was the case, then the cross of Christ would no longer be sufficient. We would need to add our good deeds to it. It would be faith plus something. It would be Jesus plus something. And Paul would not stand for that. Now, they could not resolve it. So they ended up having to travel to Jerusalem to appear before the elders and the apostles. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise men and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So both parties are there. Let's call it the Jesus-only party and the Jesus-plus party. And they are presenting their case before the elders and the apostles. And the stakes are really high here because it's determining what the gospel will be for the nations, ultimately for us. Do you have to be circumcised or baptized or churched or have your act together in some particular way? Would it be Jesus plus some good deed on my part? Or would faith and grace in Jesus' work alone be enough? That's what's at stake here. And Peter stands up to testify. And after there's been much debate, he stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And he's thinking back about ten years. You remember he has a dramatic vision and he's sent to visit a man named Cornelius who's a Roman centurion. And Peter is reminding them of the conversion of Cornelius and his whole household by the Holy Spirit, they believed. And Peter puts it plainly. To entangle salvation with keeping the law is to make it unattainable. And then he summarizes it with this statement. Peter says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. It's all of grace. Paul will later say, not of works that anyone should boast. You know, I've always loved to describe grace by saying that it's when you get what you don't deserve and you don't get what you do deserve, you get something better, way better. But there, there are no adequate definitions of grace. Uh, it's best cited in stories. And I, I love the one that um, author Sky Jathani tells. He says, um, have you ever found yourself at a party that you stumbled into, maybe uninvited or totally unexpected, and you said you just had a great time. He said, well, I was in Cooperstown, New York, at the Baseball Hall of Fame on the weekend when three players were inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The night before the induction, there was a private red carpet reception at the Hall of Fame, and he says, I was there. He said, I'm not even a baseball fan, but there I was getting a picture with Cal Ripken, the, the former shortstop of the Baltimore Orioles who still holds the record for starting in the most consecutive pro baseball games, an astounding 2,632 games in a row. I was chilling with former L.A. Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda. I had a nice conversation with Johnny Bench, the former catcher who played in 14 All-Star games. There was Andre Dawson, Wade Boggs, Carlton Fisk. He said, I didn't even know who most of these guys were. He said, but I had a great time. But I had no right being there. He says, I have friends, huge baseball fans, who would have killed 
for my place at the party. How, he said, did I get in? He said, well, it turns out one of the inductees this year was a player named Deacon White. White played in the 1870s. He was one of the early superstars of baseball, an amazing athlete. And then Sky writes, he says, it just so happens that I married his great-great-granddaughter. He said, so we got invited to the VIP party at the Baseball Hall of Fame. And we had a great time, he said. See, he married into the VIP Hall of Fame party into a grace undeserved. You and me, we're adopted into something far greater. We're adopted into the very family of God. A grace wholly undeserved. And grace is one of those things that when you add even the best of things to it, like these believing Pharisees were attempting to do in Jerusalem, when you add anything to grace, you corrupt it. You even deny it in a sense. And, and well-intentioned people are still doing it today. They'll say things like, <clears throat> you have to look to Jesus and add something sacred to it. You have to look to Jesus and be baptized to be saved. Others will say you have to look to Jesus and give up some sacrilege, right? Like smoking or drinking or some culturally unacceptable behavior or some particularly unacceptable sin. You have to clean yourself up and believe in Jesus in order to be saved. So in their thinking, it's not enough to just have faith in Jesus. Something else must be added to it. Some very good and sacred act or the giving up of something sinful. But Peter is saying, if we do that, even if it's a good thing, a God-honoring thing, which it almost always is, if we make it look to Jesus and do something else too, we are making salvation unattainable, making it something other than grace. So Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just, just as we are. And these are the last words we hear from Peter in the book of Acts. He leaves the scene with this defense of grace. It's all of grace. Now, Peter, and, Peter leaves. Barnabas and Paul get up to speak, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles on that first missionary journey. They told stories attesting to God's salvation of uncircumcised Gentiles with great signs and wonders. And from here, the baton is passed fully to Paul, and we follow him on his remaining journeys, where ultimately, you remember just a couple weeks ago, he ended up in Rome as a prisoner after suffering great hardship so that he might testify of Christ there in Rome at the end of the earth, as they knew. And so what we see going on in the book of Acts the Spirit comes, right, is poured out in accordance with the promise. And the church is born and commissioned and empowered to take the message of the grace and love of God in Christ to all peoples. From here to near to far. Even to the ends of the earth. And throughout it all, the Spirit is mightily at work. He's baptizing, filling, empowering guiding, warning. He's poured out on all kinds of people, all manner of miracles. He's calling leaders to come here and go there. He grants wisdom and boldness and joy and comfort to those in need. 
He's speaking and guiding and empowering the disciples throughout the book of Acts. And we would say it's the same spirit today who indwells us as disciples just like that day. We would say same, same, right? Same spirit, same indwelling in the disciples. And so that takes us back to our question, what has the spirit been saying to you? Over these 52 weeks, 39 sermons, 1,006 verses, 24,229 words. Can you remember what the Spirit has been saying to you through the book of Acts? That's why we're here in part, right? To receive from God that which is His will for us to go and do. What is it for you? Now, what we'd like to do to close our service is give you a chance to remember Actually, stop right now and remember, the worship team is going to come up and they're going to lead us in just a time of reflection. You may want to open your Bible and flip through the book of Acts and remember what God has been saying to you. If you're part of that uh, fading remnant who still takes notes on sermons, you may want to open up your notes, your journal, and look and see what God has been saying to you. You may want to listen. The team is going to read scripture starting in the beginning of Acts. Just select excerpts throughout the book of Acts from start to finish. But again, the purpose is to be reminded and to remember what God has been saying to his church, what God has been saying to you. So if you'll bow with me in prayer, let's begin a time of remembering and listening to what the Spirit is saying to us, okay? Father, we do ask now that by your Spirit, you would come to us, your forgetful people, and help us remember pray that the Spirit would bring to mind those things which you have spoken specifically to us, to each one, that you would give us faith to obey and to do and to honor you. Affirm those things which you have said to us repeatedly. Bring to mind, maybe for the first time, things that you want us to go and do. Father, we want to listen now to what the Spirit says to the church. I ask it in your Christ's name.